0: Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense wisdom and his clear open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Jack. So let yourself settle and listen in whatever way is comfortable for you. You don't have to remember anything from this. There's no quiz at the end, Um, no exam. But more, listen in a kind of contemplative or meditative spirit, which is to say, let the words and stories come. And if something touches that which you know to be true in yourself, if it's really a reminder of something that you know and value, then that's something worthwhile for you. And if it doesn't seem right, just let it go. Over the course of this year, in these um, monthly Monday nights that I'm um, able to do, and it's very nice to be back, um, I've been working through a series of teachings which are called in the Buddhist tradition the Ten Perfections, the Perfections of the Heart. Um, and I would like to speak of them also as an expression of our own Buddha nature, of what is born into us, of the the beautiful qualities and capacities that every human being is born with and that can be developed or that can be um, brought forward um, even though we might forget or lose them. So we've talked about in these past months the quality of integrity or virtue, the quality of generosity of a generous heart, the quality of wisdom, the quality of wise effort, um, those kind of qualities. And tonight, we get to talk about what's traditionally called the the perfection of patience. Now, this is a tough one, and not just for you. <laughs> But the story that starts these uh, perfections, and that I didn't really tell, um, I think, on the first Monday night of this series, um, is that when one takes a vow to become fully enlightened as a Buddha, it's said then, having taken such a vow, in general, and it took uh, the last Buddha, Siddhartha, Gautama, Shakyamuni Buddha, uh, more or less this amount of time, to... Um, practicing patience and wisdom and loving-kindness and compassion and dedication and truthfulness and generosity and so forth um, for a 100,000 mahakalpas and four immensities. And a mahakalpa is described as the length of time it takes. If you have a mountain that's as high as Mount Everest, five, seven yojana's high, the distance an ox cart can go in a day, and every hundred years a bird flies across the top of the mountain with a silk scarf in its beak dragging it across the top of the mountain and wearing it down a little bit when that mountain is worn down that's one mahakalpa <laughs> so you hear this and you go all right i can be patient a little bit and maybe wise and virtuous and so once in a while but a hundred thousand mahakalpas and then for immensities and the beautiful thing about it is that it's a mythological number. It's, a, it's a, a number that's not literal, because when you hear it, it's impossible. And what it means, actually, is that you have to understand this not within time, but it's an invitation to see something outside of time, something that's more universal and grand, like the turning of the seasons and the turning of the galaxies itself. And then when you understand it in this way you start to see that these perfections are not something that are out there to be gained after a 100,000 maha of the bird wearing the mountain down, but rather they're a kind of flowering that can happen um, that doesn't uh, exist because you get to be better and better at something, but rather that you discover that this is actually who you are. This is your own true nature. Um... Now, I was running a retreat and doing a ritual, a ceremony for the empowerment of some new teachers at our retreat hall, which is part of this campus that's um, beyond this building. Some of you may have done, many of you have done retreats there. And it was built, it was finished in 1999, so it's been open for 17 or 18 years. And I did a quick calculation for the fun of it and how many... People come on retreat typically, how many retreat days a year, how many hours during the day. And I said, oh, 3.4 million meditation hours in that room already. I thought that was very impressive, you know. So these numbers, mahakalpas and things like that, they actually happen, and they happen to you because it's not 100,000 of the bird, but it's 100,000 breaths. And how many do you pay attention to? What does it mean? And a hundred thousand steps, and and uh, you know, ten thousand moments of looking in the eyes of the people that you love around you, um, and the invitation from these qualities is to make the, these moments really alive for yourself, which is really in part why we practice. Now, you know, normally one thinks, "All right, I'm going to." do meditation and I'll get better at it and I'll improve myself and I'll be a better person and maybe I'll even get enlightened whatever that is but maybe I'll find out what it is right but then you notice when you're sitting that one of the great desires that happens when one's sitting is the desire to hear the bell right (laughs) (laughs) you know it's true all right so this guy goes to the Zen master and he says, a really ardent young man, they're the most troublesome of all, but the most interesting, he says, I'm here and I'm really going to do it, you know, and I want to practice and, and so forth. How long will it take to get enlightened? The Zen master says, 20 years. No, he says, 10 years for you, tw- 10 years. The young man says, 10 years. What if I practice really hard and throw myself in? That's when the master said, okay, 20 on your case." is going to take me. He says, oh, no, isn't there any way I can do this faster? He said, yeah, for you, 30 years I can tell. So we have this idea somehow that um, the way we're supposed to become something magnificent as a spiritual being or a wise person is through some gain that we're going to get, some effort, some making something happen. Um, but it doesn't really happen that way. Uh, Tennessee Williams wrote, the violets in the mountains have broken the rocks. There's something that happens that wants to open in us, but it doesn't necessarily take the kind of gaining and effort as much as it does the willingness to be present. Because we think in our practice, well, if I do it right, I'll fix my Personality. I mean, we talk about this, right? You you go to therapy, and you have a coach, and you go to the gym, and you work out, and you have a good diet, and you meditate, and you know you're you're going to perfect yourself. How's that project going? (laughs) (laughs) You know, and then you start to realize, okay, I guess it's not really. Or you set your goal: I'm going to meditate, and then I'll never be depressed or lonely, or angry, or needy, or greedy. I'll just be holy and wise, you know. Talk to your family members, see how their perspective on that is. Okay. So if I would only sit more retreats, and so forth. Now the thing is that we live in a culture that teaches us this. We live in a hurried culture, you know. And I remember when, for a time, I think it was partly to save um energy that speed limits were lowered to 55 miles an hour everywhere i don't know who it was maybe it was under carter or something like that but then you know for us speed freaks and myself included gratefully it was raised again to 65 miles an hour but you know now there are places out west in wyoming and so further you can go 80 and 90 miles an hour fantastic you know <laughs> this is our culture right we live in this hurried culture and you're online all the time, and people are getting to you, and then you have to respond right away. Hurry up, hurry up. And, and um, so you can do all that stuff so you can have leisure, right? You've got computers so you could get all your work done so you could have more leisure time. How many people, after you got your computers and your devices, have more leisure time? <laughs> Raise your hand. Come on. Let's be, you know. It's not the way our culture works. It's just more more, 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 and quicker, and sooner, right? Um, and then we have our hurried children. So I think about this uh, psychiatrist from Tuck University, Dr. Elkind, who wrote a book about seeing kids who are 8, and 9, and 10 years old with ulcers and from stress. And I was teaching in China and in, in uh, Singapore and working with some people from South Korea. Um, and there's a high suicide rate among kids, especially, you know, high school, college age, because there is so much pressure. I was giving a talk at the largest psychology department in China, in Beijing Normal University. They said, what do we need to talk about? I said, well, why don't we talk about what's happening to the kids? But it's not just there, you know. It's here. You've got to prepare for the interviews to get into the right preschool. Right, so you can get your way to Stanford or Harvard, right? But you got to start early, and then there are all those things like alphabet cards for your, you know, kids and reading programs for infants in the womb. <laughs> Sing to the kids, don't read to them, please, you know. Um, Mothering magazine, um, uh, which is Peggy O'Mara, the editor, very wise. She says. We have a cultural bias against dependency or against any emotion that indicates weakness. Nowhere more tragically evident than the way we push our children beyond their limits and timetables with outside standards. This is when you're supposed to be weaned. This is when you're supposed to be potty trained. This is when you're supposed to, instead of teaching them to trust themselves, putting good healthy food on the table instead of saying, finish everything on your plate, Give them healthy food and let them learn to regulate themselves. She says, Begrudging dependency because it is not independence is like begrudging winter because it's not yet spring. Dependency blossoms into independence in its own sweet time, and our children grow from crawling to walking, babbling to talking, puberty into sexuality. This is the way that life unfolds, and we can trust it. So you start to feel, actually, if you get really take a moment to breathe and slow down, that it's painful to not honor the natural cycle of things in your own life, in the life of our children, in the life of the world in which we live. This is Zorba the Greek, who says... um, I remember one morning I discovered a cocoon in the bark of a tree just as a butterfly was making a hole in its case and preparing to come out. I waited a while, but it was too long appearing, and I was impatient. I bent over it and breathed on it to warm it and warmed it as quickly as I could, and the miracle began to oh, began to happen before my eyes faster than life. The case opened. The butterfly started slowly crawling out, And I shall never forget my horror when I saw how its wings were folded back and crumpled. The wretched butterfly tried with its whole trembling body to unfold them. Bending over it, I tried to help it with my breath. In vain. It needed to be hatched out patiently, and the unfolding of the wings needed to be a gradual process in the sun. Now it was too late. My breath had forced the butterfly to appear all crumpled before its time. It struggled desperately, and a few minutes later died in the palm of my hand. And of course, he's a brilliant writer, and so he can use that scene from his life to remind us of something that's really important for us as human beings, of what is the natural unfolding of our children, of our own bodies, of our aging, of our adolescence, of our whatever it happens to be, of the work that we care about. So it turns out that spiritual practice is not about the perfection of yourself. It's really the perfection of love. And in that, this quality of patience um, is more the quality of listening, the listening heart, of attending, of presence, of living in the mystery of being alive rather than being looking for the goal, whether it's the spiritual or some other goal that you might have. From T.S. Eliot again, where he writes, I said to my soul, be still and wait without hope, for hope would be hope of the wrong thing. Wait without love, for love would be love of the wrong thing. There is yet faith, but the faith and love and hope are all in the waiting So the darkness shall be the light, and the stillness the dancing. Extraordinary language, the stillness, the dancing. Oh, nobly born, begin the Buddhist text. Remember the rhythms of life that you were born into. Return to them. Live with that kind of dignity and presence that is your birthright. So we talk about patience, but really patience is not a very good word. Because patience is like, well, if I wait long enough, something good will happen, right? I'm waiting and waiting. People sit in meditation waiting and waiting for something to happen, like waiting on the bus, right? A better word for it, from Zen Master Suzuki Roshi at San Francisco Zen Center, he said a better word for it is constancy rather than patience or impatience, waiting for something. It's simply a willingness to be present, as we just did in our meditation, to sit And feel this breath, these emotions, these thoughts and stories in the mind, the ones that are skillful and the ones that are unskillful, and these experiences in our body that need to be tended to, to begin to trust the unfolding of this body and mind as we become present. And sometimes, as you know very well, the times when you get impatient or bored, or when things seem bad and you want something better to happen or when they get really difficult are the times when you learn the things that the heart needs to know the most. I was just in Los Angeles and I was in a conversation with this guy who built this very successful and huge real estate empire half a billion dollars or something, zillions of dollars anyway, Um, seemed like a lot to me. uh, and he'd quit after a while. He was really successful. He was on his way to being worth many billions, and, you know, half a billion now, whatever. Um, uh, but he had an autistic child, and he had to stop. You know, And there was all the conflict in the family, how do we do this, and, and what it meant to raise this autistic um, child. And he looked at me, and this, is, this child's now about 10 years old, And he said, you know, I have learned more from this child. It changed my life. I was driven. I was lost. And this child required me to quiet myself, to learn what it means to be present for someone in ways that I didn't even know how to do, which then meant I was present for my wife and my other children. And he said, you know, I can't express to you how important it is to have gone through what at first seemed just a tragedy. Um... But the difficulty of being with this beautiful child also is that they brought me my life back. And we all know this in some way. Some of the hardest things that you've been through are the things that crack your heart open. So it says in the Tao, um, those who are wise have no mind to fight the Tao. They do not, by their own contrivance, try to help the Tao along right? They rest in the present, in the rhythms of life. And this is more the constancy, the willingness to show up with loving awareness, which is the synonym we're using for mindfulness, where you are, rest in the rhythms. And then you drop into your own true nature. Here we are, wow, what is this that's unfolding? Now, um, I could almost tell it as a joke This is um, Carl Jung and Rumi walk into a bar, right? (laughs) It's kind of like that. Um, But I don't have the passage from Carl Jung, but there's some point where he writes. He says, if somebody's trying to get you to do a business deal quickly... Do you know who's behind it? Where they say, you have to sign now this piece of property, this building, this, you know, stock option. It's going to disappear like that, you know. Or someone else is trying to get you to do something. You should be able to look behind that vice and see who it is because you know who's there. The devil. That was Jung's word. This is Mara, you know, tempting the Buddha and saying, hurry up, you've got to do it now. And of course, this is, this is Rumi, A friend remarks to the prophet, why is it I get screwed in business deals? It's like a spell. I become distracted and make wrong decisions. And Muhammad replies, stipulate with every transaction that you need three days to make sure. Deliberation is one of the divine and holy qualities. Throw a dog a bit of something. He sniffs it to see if he wants it. Be careful. Sniff with your wisdom nose, then decide. So this is Carl Jung and Rumi in a bar. Anyway, there you are. But you can hear the truth of it, that, you know, hurry up, do it. get and, and, and where are we going? Honestly, where are you going? I mean, if you step back in a little bit of the bigger picture, we're all going to the same place, right? In a little while. So what's the hurry? Why don't we, like, enjoy it while we're here? Now, in teaching this, you know, of course there is the slow food movement in France. Thank you to the French for this. I'm really, you know, I want to love her with a slow hand too. There's always that. Um, the truth is that I'm a pretty impatient person by temperament. I think quickly. I do things quickly. I don't like being late. Sometimes I hate being late if I promise to be there. I leap up the stairs two at a time, still pretty much. It's just, you know, I'm wired like that, kind of like a hummingbird a little bit. Um, And I remember I was teaching at our retreat center in Massachusetts some years ago and uh, leading one of our long three-month silent retreats as we have a two-month silent retreat every winter, spring here. There were about 100 people. There were a bunch of people who'd come from Europe And this one guy came in to talk to me. We had these little meditation um, meetings with students to find out how they're doing and support their practice. And he came in and he said, you know, I'm so disappointed. And I said, oh. He said, I've listened to you on, you know, CD or cassette tapes or whatever it was back in the day. You know, and you just sound so peaceful and mellow and so forth. And then I'm watching you here go up and down the stairs, you know, running around. And you look like an Italian shoe salesman. (laughs) Would you like to see our latest uh, fashion? Yeah. So when I get mindful um, and pay attention and notice impatience, which here it's not just that I'm impatient for the result, or there is that, you know, okay, I want the ice cream, or I want the completion of this, I want that to happen. There's that part of it, of grasping. But there's also something else that I notice, that um, it's hard to be present for certain other feelings, like boredom, or I'm wasting time. You know that thought, like, you're in traffic, and You're wasting. I mean, it's really amazing. I'm here. I'm I'm driving down to the Golden Gate Bridge, and there's a there's been an accident, or there's a traffic jam. Okay, and I can get impatient as we do. Does it help? (laughs) Do you get there any faster? My body goes. I want. I don't want this happening. I want to be. And I go. Oh, well, look at that. And it's hard to actually pay attention to the um, frustration or the boredom or the emptiness, or the loss of time, or all those kinds of things. And it, um, it really is the question, who are we if we're not doing things, if we're not accomplishing something? You know? And I'm a kind of serial doer, so I have you know, that doing problem that many people in this culture have. And it's fine to be able to do stuff. It's actually very satisfying. But it's really hard if that's the only song that you can play. Who are we if we're also, and who am I if I'm not doing? So instead of patience, the word is constancy. constancy, And maybe the opposite of impatience is not patience, but somehow presence or trust or contentment. These are some of the opposites. To be able to begin to trust where you are, And say, here's where I am. I'm in a traffic jam, you know, and all these people, all their cars are blocking mine. My car is blocking theirs. I'm part of the traffic jam, you know. You're blaming all of them, but you forget to look at the other car that you've added to it, right? But the images of like the person who's riding the train and they carry their bags, they won't put them down, like, you know, you're going to get there faster or something like that. You can pick all the flowers says Pablo Neruda but you can't stop the spring. There's something in that verse especially you know in these times and genuine concern for the climate of the earth and things like that which maybe talk about in a, in a minute um, but there's also some bigger season that's going on that the earth has its own life and seasons you can pick all the flowers but there's something that pushes the new life through the cracks in the sidewalk and that can't be stopped Rumi says by God don't be an impatient bystander in this life you know be present for it and if you look at little kids they know this I mean I was with a little kid who was in a high chair dropping his spoon over the edge a lot of times to make sure gravity really worked right (laughs) And you know, he's an experiment, he's a scientist. Okay, let me see if it works again. And also, he's a psychologist. Let me see if they'll pick it up again, right? <laughs> All those things he's studying and 100,000 times dropping the spoon off and babbling and trying these things, you know. And, and, um, So in spiritual life, we might have the sense of progress, getting better, like in electronics and technology—a a, a smaller, smarter smartphone, you know, that has more capacities, and you know, and so forth. Um, the old Zen story that describes it of as a Zen master who's there and a student is meditating and the master says well what are you doing he said I'm meditating so that I can get enlightened I know that it's possible and the master picks up a brick and he takes out his handkerchief and he starts rubbing the brick with his handkerchief and the student says what are you doing he says well I'm polishing this brick to turn it into a mirror (laughs) and the student said no matter how you polish it it's not going to turn into a mirror And the man looked looked at the student and said, no matter how hard you try in that way, you're not going to turn into the kind of enlightenment that you think you should be. Maybe you should be yourself. A brick is a brick. We have a certain measure of sorrow. Sorrow is our sorrow. Beauty is our beauty. And when we come into the present, we actually bow to our human incarnation and say, this is it. This is actually it. That's where enlightenment starts, where you are here and now. And the real openings in spiritual life happen most frequently when we stop trying to make or do or be anything. And I know it for myself. On my own retreats, there gets to a certain point where I just let go and I'm just there. Um, And that becomes, in some ways, the most beautiful in the most fruitful time, all kinds of things start to open up for me. And then somebody says, yeah, but what about refugees? What about the war in Syria and South Sudan and the Philippines and Burma? What about continuing racism and injustice? What about climate change? Um, the moral arc of the universe may be long, but it bends toward justice but it's pretty hard to bend it these days. It's sort of like it's um, bending maybe a little bit the other way for a bit. Um, How do we see patience in this? How do we see constancy? Um, You know, I think there are a few things to say. One, which is a passage from Thomas Merton that I love to read because it's got so much wisdom in it, He's speaking to a young activist, and he says, a frustrated activist, do not depend on the hope of results. You may have to face the fact that your work will be apparently worthless and even achieve no result at all, if not perhaps at times result in the opposite of what you expected. As you get used to this idea, you start more and more to concentrate not on the results, but on the value, the rightness, and the truth of the work itself. But somehow you get quiet enough to listen and say, what really matters to me? And this is the direction I'm I'm headed in. And I don't know, I can't tell what's going to, it's not given to you to know how it's going to turn out. But what's given to you is to quiet your mind and tend your heart and sense what is the direction that I want to offer of my life to this world. And then whether it's injustice or climate change or racism or warfare or all those kinds of things, you can act, but you act in a different way. You know, you act the way Gandhi acted. And what he did, as you know, we all know from the story, is he took one day a week in silence where he didn't do anything. And he's in the middle of taking apart the entire British Empire. And there's hundreds of thousands of people marching in, people getting killed and so forth. Gandhiji, Gandhiji, you must come. You know people are dying and he said i'm sorry it's thursday this is my day off right i can't come i sit in silence on thursday and he sat to quiet himself and to listen in some way to a different channel than the channel of doing to listen what matters to me what do i care about in this life and how can i align my actions and my words to the Dow, to what's really unfolding, and to the deepest values that I carry. And you might say, well, that's Gandhi. But I was just also with kind of Silicon Valley people, including some people who run these, you know, the Facebook, Google kind of giant companies. And I was talking to the CEO of one of them who said, yeah, I'm taking next week off because we have, we really have to do some visioning about where our company, Corporation or company, and our hundreds, thousands of employees are going. And um, I can't do that in my office. I just have to go and be quiet for a while. And then I get an intuition, I get a a knowing. We talked about it, and I talked to him a few days later after he'd been kind of quiet for some days. He said, Oh, yeah, it's all starting to come. And you know this. Um, You know, sometimes when you're taking a walk, is when all of a sudden you understand something. Or, you know, in your dreams, if you remember them. And so there's a... It's not that you don't care about the world and respond to it and act in an honorable way. But it's a shift from trying to make it happen with your will and instead opening to what your heart tells you is the wisest thing to do from a quiet place like Gandhi and letting your actions then follow something that's more timeless. Agbandino, he says, opportunities are everywhere, and so you must always let your hook be hanging. When you least expect it, a great fish will swim by. You know, So it's not that you just do it, but you also open yourself to listen in a different way. now it's also useful to begin to study what keeps us from contentment what keeps us from presence you know how many people would be grateful for the day that you had there are a lot of people in this world still without enough to eat without shelter who are um, whose lives are in danger in different ways you know or who is sick you know If your doctor calls and gives you this diagnosis and then, you know, a few days later you get the call and says, I'm sorry, um, it was a mistake, you know, go, hallelujah, I have my life back, right? I thought I only had a few months to live. Um, And what do you do? You hug your children, you watch the rain, you look at the light on the golden grasses here, um, you know, and the the beautiful kind of late evening summer light that happens for us in California. That's the outer gold kind of shines to our inner gold. Um, I mean, what really matters in the end? There aren't that many things in the end, you know. Did you love well? Maybe. Did you live fully instead of so much in the future and the past? Did you actually live your moments? And maybe did you learn to let go? Because if you don't learn it now, you're going to have a crash course at some point. It's going to come, you know. Hmm. So maybe in this quality of constancy or patience, there's really a trust in the seasons of life. Don't the leaves fall down just like that? A Chinese poet. In the body opening, in the rhythms of being born, and of dancing and singing and working and bringing justice and loving and gain and loss and joy and sorrow and tears and delight that make up our human incarnation. And to... to, Rest in your Buddha nature to say, yes, this is what we were born into, and let me hold it with loving awareness. Let me be present for it. Let me be part of this unfolding. So when my daughter was um, six years old, we went, my family was raising her, we went on sabbatical about every five years or so to Asia to live for six months or more. Um, And I would work on a book or something like that. We lived in, a, in one village in Thailand and another village in Bali. And when she was six, we were living with this Balinese family. She went to this uh, Balinese dance school, because all the little girls in Bali were dancing, as you know, temple dancers, on Jalan Sugriwa in Ubud back in the like, late 80s. Um, and we were there for some months, and she learned to do the Pendat and some dancing. Um, and then before we were supposed to leave, uh, she was going to have a recital and some people were coming and so forth. And it was in the late afternoon and we came and I brought a video camera, right? And um, they started to prepare her and they um, first ritually bathed her and washed her down some and they did some prayers over her um, and then they put this beautiful sarong on, and then they wrapped her body in this kind of gold silk about 20 times around her, you know. Then they put on this amazing jewelry. Then they started putting on makeup, more makeup than a six-year-old girl could die for having. It was just, she was just smiling like this, right? Um, And I'm noticing that the light is fading, you know, and I'm not gonna get a good video, right, of this. It's gonna be dark. And then the the, the dance the teacher's wife comes over, who'd been actually my daughter's main teacher, and sticks these gold flowers in her hair, and you know, fix her. And they're just taking their time, and I'm getting more and more impatient. Like I need to get need to record this thing, right? Um, and the the dance teacher just kind of looked over at me like any good Zen master, and kind of smiled. And then they kept prepping her for it. And finally at some point um, I remembered and I understood something. Because in Bali, um, when you dance or when you sing or when you make art, and there's so much art in the Balinese culture, you don't do it for the approval of other people. You're not doing it for your audience. You do it for the gods. And the beautiful thing is that it doesn't matter how old you are. If you're 80 years old, and I saw one of the greatest dance masters of Bali who was in her 80s, who just did this extraordinary stuff. Or if you're five and six years old, you are dancing for the gods, and therefore you deserve the same care and the same gold and the same that the, the, the teacher's wife took off her own jewelry and put it all on my daughter. And it was, it was just magnificent. I don't have the pictures. <laughs> But I have the lesson and the memory, and it's something that I'll, you know, that I'll treasure. Um, Who are we doing it for in some way? You know, we we are acting and dancing in some way, going through our life, either to get it all done or, you know, check the things off our list or do what you're supposed to do to accomplish all these things. And, okay, I accomplished all this. Now what? What is this for? or for the dance itself. Thomas Merton, again, you know, such a wonderful uh, contemplative and writer, and he talked about the kind of his art as a writer. He said, if you write as a sacred act, or you write for the divine, you'll reach many men and women and bring them joy. If you write for men and women, you may make some money and you may give someone a little joy and you may make a noise in the world for a little while. If you write for your own self-promotion, you can read what you have written and after ten minutes you'll be so disgusted you'll wish you were dead. (laughs) Now it may be a little bit of an exaggeration, but you can hear the difference, can't you? And you know it. You know it in the work you do or in the sandwich that you make for your family or, you know, the, the tending of someone that you care about or the way that you move through the world. And this is really what this quality uh, of constancy, of presence, of patience. It's not something out there and it's not 100,000 maha away. It's this breath. And the 100,000 moments that make up something that's beautiful in your own life. And here we are in this turning of the seasons, you know, as we do in the turning of the turning of the spheres. And we honor the, the mystery and the rhythms of life. Sometimes I go about pitying myself, as the Ojibwe saying goes, that we all know, when, when all the while I'm being carried by great winds across the sky. So when you sit in meditation, it's not so much to gain something. And Yes, you can learn to quiet the mind. You can have insights and visions. They're beautiful things some of the time. Sometimes you sit and what you get is the tension in your body or the unfinished business of the heart, the tears that need to be wept but you've been too busy to feel them, or the longing or the love that hasn't been expressed and you go, I have to tell that person I love them. You know, I haven't done that. And you take your seat in the rhythms of birth and death and gain and loss and joy and sorrow as the Buddha that you are, and you say, oh yes, this is the rounds of human incarnation, and now let me rest in the heart and live from a place of presence, live from a place of understanding. The culture doesn't help, as we know. And I remember when I was young, in um, Massachusetts, where I lived part of the time, they had the blue laws. And the blue laws meant... Everything shut down mostly on weekends. Then it was then it was just Sunday. Nothing was open. It was a commercial Sabbath. You couldn't order anything on Amazon on that day because Amazon didn't exist. Um, but basically the society had decided that Sabbath was actually a healthy thing. We used to have this, you know, and every culture has it. There's a Jewish Sabbath and a Muslim Sabbath, and there's a Buddhist full moon, quarter moon, new moon, you know, where everything would stop. And every wise culture knows you have to put down the plow or put down the pen or, you know, stop your coding or selling and buying or whatever it happens to be and take the time to listen and take the time to stop. And so since the society doesn't have it, your own meditation practice becomes your Sabbath. It becomes your way in the morning or the evening or whenever it works for you to stop, to tune in, to listen in a deeper way, to find your own rhythm and the rhythm of what is around you. Looking for a story here. And this is, you know, it's a story about something bigger, but it could be a story about your meditation too because sometimes it feels like it's working and sometimes it doesn't, whatever you're, if you have some model or ideal about it. But if you're sitting there and you're bored or you're frustrated or you doubt it's not working, you can either believe that or you can say, oh, I get to be mindful of boredom. Or doubt, or not working. Oh, doubting mind, that's interesting. Boredom, because usually when we're bored, what do we do? Open the refrigerator, right? Or go online or something, because you can't tolerate your loneliness or boredom. But if you say, oh, it's not working, hmm, how interesting. I wonder what's happening that it feels like it's not working. That's just a thought. The man was my age, but looked many years older. He was an Army veteran. He was also homeless. "'cold and hungry. "'I could see that he'd tried to wash up "'before coming to the social service department "'to ask for help. "'His face and hands were clean, "'but his clothes were filthy. "'And although he claimed not to have had any alcohol that day, "'the smell of it seeped from his pores. "'I wanted to get him into rehab, "'and I asked if he was ready to come in off the streets. "'No, ma'am,' he said. "'All I'd like is a few dollars and some bus tickets.' If I can get sober enough, they'll let me into the shelter across the town. The shelter had 50 beds, cots, really. The homeless were admitted at night and forced out at dawn to eat breakfast at a nearby charity. 50 beds and nearly a 1,000 homeless in our city. This is Santa Rosa, by the way. Winter here in Northern California means cold rain and mud. And even though this man and many like him slept under bridges to keep dry, The dampness penetrates everything. His clothes and the bedroll he'd placed on the floor smelled moldy. The pages of a book he carried were swollen. I asked how many times he'd tried rehab. Two or three a long time ago, he said. Maybe it's time to try again. I explained that I had a client who'd gone through the program seven times before it took. Beside, I said, we're months away from warm weather, What else have you got going on? I watched his face as he considered my offer. I thought I saw a flicker of hope in his eyes, followed by a shadow of doubt. He'd tried before. It had been hard, impossibly hard, but so was living on the streets. Finally, he lifted his head and looked at me. I reached for the phone. Shall I? I asked. He barely nodded yes. An hour later, I handed him over to a recovering alcoholic, also a veteran, who would drive him to one of the best rehab facilities in the county. Come visit me when you graduate, I said as they left. I barely recognized the man when he came into my office six months later, so tall and handsome, smelling like the outdoors and holding a huge bouquet of flowers. So sometimes you sit and it doesn't seem like it's working and then you got to sit again, you know, and you do it because of where else are you going? If you can't be here for these moments, for the eyes of the people that you care about, you know, for the colors at dawn, if you get up early, um, you know, for the smell of the bay trees as you walk out into the parking lot and the moon that starts to shine tonight, it's, you know, it's, getting fuller. Um, What is it for? What is it for? So this isn't speaking about becoming passive. It's really your ability to be present so you can respond. So you can plant the seeds that matter to you in this beautiful world, no matter what else is happening. You know, and again, from uh, Thoreau, He says, where are you? Though I do not believe that a plant will spring up where no seed has been, I have great faith in a seed. Convince me you have a seed planted there, and I am prepared to expect wonders. And so you plant your seeds in all the different ways that you do. It's not passive at all. It's sort of sensing the season's, And then something beautiful and unstoppable, which is life itself, which is what you are, comes into you. It becomes part of who you are. Um, And there's a dignity and a graciousness and an ease and a peacefulness in it because there's some great trust. You know, I've been training teachers now for almost 40 years, and we've had a whole succession of teacher trainings here. We've just started the latest Spirit Rock teacher training for 20 new retreat teachers um, and they're almost all teachers of color because we've had um, it's been very clear that our community is not only not diverse um, but also that somehow we've been collectively unconscious about the need um, to live in a diverse society and to make it who we are and not just some ideal out there or some other place so um, one of the things that seems really important in this um, is to have the folks who sit up here and teach really represent um, everybody and not just some subset of the white community or something like that. Um, and so it's a really, it's a beautiful group. I'm very excited about it. But the thing that, that I kind of said to them and I said to the, my colleagues who are new at um, training teachers, I said, you know, we really don't train them much. I mean, we give them great lectures and teach them the Buddhist history and things that are helpful and tools and when people are in meditation, how you can help them open their hearts and quiet their minds and a of this stuff. I said, but blah, 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 blah. Mostly, they learn it by doing it. You know, like any apprenticeship. And they get nervous and they practice and they learn. And I said, the beautiful thing is that it's completely trustworthy. And I've had people come in who have a very deep meditation ex- experience of realization and understanding and good hearts and all kinds of beautiful qualities. Um, but they're shy and they're timid and they don't know if they can talk and I don't know what I have to offer. Those are the best kind, actually. They're the kind of the real ones. Um, and I watch them flower. And I don't actually have to do much. I just have to provide the the support, and to say, yeah, you have it. And the beautiful thing is that you have it. You have it. All the qualities necessary for awakening, the perfect emotions and the perfect body and the perfect experience are what you have. You have all that's needed to awaken. And you have these beautiful qualities in you. So to meditate isn't to have a particular experience, but to remember that you can be present for this life in an entirely different way in a loving and compassionate and wise way. Now, I've got a lot more stories, but I'm not going to read them or tell them. Um, Maybe one poem from Ikkyu, Zen poet. He says, Every day I hear the priests chant the sutras. They should learn to read the love letters sent by the wind and the rain, the blossoms and the moon. So it's not the words in the text, but it's really the attention to the to the world that that is, as my poet friend Alison Luderman says, nibbling your ear like a neglected lover. Come back, be present for it. And being present, by the way, the last thing before I read our pen our, our our final story is that um, being present doesn't mean that it's going to be pleasant. The idea of be here now, you know, you've heard that book, and I just came from visiting Ram Dass, which was really wonderful in Hawaii. Trudy and I went to spend time with him because he um, presided over our wedding a year ago. We decided to go back and visit him. And he's 85 in his wheelchair for the last 18 years, you know, still aphasia. He can speak, but it's limited some, although his mind is very clear. But he's just all love. He just looks at you and says, I love you. You know, I love this life. I love you too. And I love you and you, you know, and I love this day and I love the ceiling. I love the exit sign. You know. <laughs> I mean, he's really funny about it. He I love the floor. And he just he can't stop loving everything. So it's um that part is is really wonderful. Um and there he says, So, you know, he looks at you and he says, you have it, you are it. It's not like you have to be somebody else. No one's ever been like you before in this whole vast galaxy. So you might as well, you know, dance. Anyway, all right, where was I? Um, so I have a story as the last one to read, which is from one of my favorite children's books. And my daughter said to me, Dad, you can't read that story and I said why not he said, she said you're too impatient it's just not right <laughs> um, so with that caveat I will read it to you anyway um, and maybe my daughter will be patient with me and maybe not but that's not my practice <laughs> this is from Arnold Lobel who's written a series of children's books called Frog and Toad um, many of you will know this and if you don't they're a wonderful children's book. And so this is a chapter out of Frog and Toad, and you can picture the, uh, the, the, the drawings that come with it. Frog and Toad are good friends. Frog was in his garden. Toad came walking by. What a fine garden you have, Frog, he said. Yes, said Frog, it is very nice, but it was hard work. I wish I had a garden, said Toad. Well, here are some flower seeds. Plant them in the ground, said Frog, and soon you will have a garden. How soon, asked Toad. (laughs) Quite soon, said Frog. Toad ran home. He planted the flower seeds. Now seeds, said Toad, start growing. Toad walked up and down a few times. The seeds did not start to grow. Toad put his head close to the ground and said loudly, Now seeds, start growing. Toad looked at the ground again. The seeds did not start to grow. Toad put his head very close to the ground and shouted, Seeds, seeds, listen, start growing. Frog came running up the path. What is all this noise, he asked. My seeds will not grow, said Toad. You are shouting too much. These poor seeds are afraid to grow. (laughs) My seeds are afraid to grow, asked Toad. So you can, I mean, you can hear what good medicine this is for parents, not to speak to the children. (laughs) Of course, said Frog. Leave them alone for a few days. Let the sun shine on them. Let the rain fall on them. Soon your seeds will start to grow. That night, Toad looked out his window. Drat, said Toad. My seeds have not started to grow. They must be afraid of the dark. Toad went out to his garden with some candles. I will read the seeds a story, said Toad. Then they will not be so afraid. Toad read a long story to his seeds. All the next day, Toad sang songs to his seeds. In the rain, you can see it raining. And all the day after, Toad read poems to his seeds. And all the next day, Toad played music for his seeds. See him playing his violin. Toad looked at the ground. The seeds still did not start to grow. What shall I do, cried Toad? These must be the most frightened seeds in the whole world. (laughs) Then Toad felt very tired, and he fell asleep. Toad, Toad, wake up, said Frog. It was morning look at your garden. Toad looked at his garden. Little green plants were coming up out of the ground. At last, shouted Toad, my seeds have stopped being afraid to grow. And now you will have a nice garden too, said Frog. Yes, said Toad, but you are right, Frog. It was very hard work. this is your Buddhist sutra for the evening. That's right. You know, if you do anything with this talk and you listen, and it reminds you of something that's important to you, um, pay attention also to when you're impatient. Study impatience. It's actually a kind of interesting thing to get curious about. What is this? You know? What keeps you from joy or contentment or being you know, present just with the way things are. And notice the stories that come or the feelings in the body and so forth. And if you bring loving awareness to that, rather than looking for trying to become constant or patient, notice the other stuff and be patient with that or be present for it. And some very interesting things will happen. In a few minutes, well, how soon, actually? Soon enough, right? Let's see, so many other stories, but I think that's enough, you know. <laughs> Gary, would you come and play a little few minutes of uh, that somewhat heavenly sound of the hung And we'll sit for a bit, just five minutes of sitting or three minutes with a little music I was going to make a remark about the impatient people leaving, but it's not fair. (laughs) Bye. (laughs) We love you, too. It's okay. You're you're carrying impatience for the rest of us. So, my friends, says Wendell Berry, every day do something that won't compute and won't count. Love the world. Work out of love. Work for nothing. Love someone who doesn't deserve it. Invest in the millennium. Plant sequoias. Put your faith in the two inches of humus that will build under the trees every thousand years. Go with your love to the fields, lie down in the shade, rest your head. So thank you, Gary. Thank you all for your kind attention. Um, It's really a pleasure. And um, good night.